0: Father, thank you that you are present just now as we consider something extremely important, obviously, and we just ask that you would uh, enlighten our minds, bring us closer to you. Uh, also, we know that there are some people uh, that are going through a very difficult time right now, especially we pray for Chris Pico, that you would be with um, be with him and his family, uh, bring comfort, and help us to, uh, each one of us to be able to have our eyes open to see how we can Uh, reach out and help those that are hurting. Amen. So we're going to talk about an issue of the cross. We've talked about a few issues that relate to the crucifixion. And this is something that um, I've just have been thinking about more and more over the last year. An interesting aspect about the death of Jesus. Okay, of course, we want to say that This is the clearest revelation of who God is. If we want to come to one place to say this is what God is all about, we want to see the one on the cross as God in human form, revealing to us this is the the pure light, this is who God is. Forgiving his enemies, the way he treated the thief on the cross, the whole what we see about Jesus through Gethsemane and up to the cross, that is God in human form and this is who our god is and I, maybe we will have a chance to talk about this but i'll just make a claim that um, the father didn't kill it, kill or torture his son on the cross we're going to talk about maybe we could title this sermon who killed jesus okay but it is very important how we see the relationship here between father and son on the cross so there's an incredibly bright light about what we find out about God at the cross. And there's a depth there that is amazing. But there is another side to the cross. We mentioned this, um, I think, a couple of months ago. Uh, Remember that Jesus told Nicodemus, as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, and then he related that to his own crucifixion. of course, the story here is, uh, remember in Numbers, the deepest rebellion, as the people are wandering through the wilderness, and they finally decided, we've had it, we're going back and they have completely rebelled against Moses. And what happens? Of course, snakes begin biting the people, and many of them die. And what does Moses do? He takes a snake, puts it up on a pole, and, come, look at this. Okay, this was rebellion, and Moses is essentially saying, look what happens when you leave God's side. And is it any mystery here that it is a snake that is involved in that, that whole story? So I think we see a bright light revelation about God, but there's also, I think, a a deep mystery here about the depravity of the human condition that we see at the cross. And that's what we're going to talk about um, here a little bit. Okay, just as a a theme that will come up as we go through this in, in different layers here, and so I just want to put this up front that we think about it, is there is a lot of scapegoating going on in the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think that is important. And I'm amazed to see how much scapegoating I have seen in myself over the years and how much I see in Christianity in general. We want to be aware of that. And uh, I think it's an important issue. And just as one little point on that, that when Herod and his soldiers made fun of Jesus and treated him with contempt, they put a fine robe on him, sent him back to Pilate. And on that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. There is nothing more powerful to bring two enemies together than a common enemy, okay? And so here we have two enemies becoming friends because of, here we've got Jesus and, and how, they're, how they're viewing Jesus. So scapegoating is a big issue. We'll come back to that. So who is on trial? I'm gonna make the case here that everything wrong about the human condition is ultimately what is on trial and what we see in Jesus. And so the first thing that we'll see that is on trial is our whole structure, kingdoms of the world, on trial. We read this in our last Bible study, remember the disciples, their whole mindset is kingdom of the world, which is power over structure. We control, coerce those below us, and we spend our whole lives trying to reach higher up on the ladder so that we have more power. That's essentially what a kingdom of the world is. And so, remember Jesus in this setting, he washed his disciples' feet, and he told them as they're arguing about who should be thought of as the greatest, okay, that's kingdom of the world, and he said, well, here's how kingdoms of the world are. The kings of the pagans have power over their people. That's the essence of it. And the rulers claim the title, friends of the people, okay? They claim that title, okay? But it is ultimately power over. And if you go too far... Uh, the, the ruler, you know, will kill you, imprison you, coerce you. But they claim the title friends of the people. But this is not the way it is with you, not the way it is in my kingdom. Rather, the greatest among you must be like the youngest. The leader must be like the servant who is greater, the one who sits down to eat, or the one who serves, the one who sits down, of course. But I am among you as one who serves. So God comes in human form and reveals to us, look at what my kingdom is like. It's We almost can't understand it because it's so different than everything we're used to in this world. But it's not like a kingdom of the world. So as we see Jesus, what he experiences here, and I think Pilate is kind of like a symbol for the kingdoms of the world, that Pilate, the kingdoms of the world, are on trial. So in this situation, of course, Jesus appears to be the one on trial, but I think as we read the conversation... And imagine how this really went between Jesus and Pilate. It's really Pilate is the one that's on trial in this conversation, okay, and extend that to every other kingdom of the world. So let's, let's listen to the conversation. So Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus answered, does this question come from you or have others told you about me? Pilate replied, do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom does not belong to this world. Okay, there it is. He's stating my kingdom is entirely different. It's not of this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would do the things that kingdoms of the world do, fight, use power, coerce. Okay, and remember, he could have called legions of angels, but that's not what his kingdom is like. Okay, if it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No, my kingdom does not belong here. So Pilate asked him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. I was born and came into this world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. And what is truth, Pilate asked. And it would seem he didn't stick around to uh, listen for an answer to that question. And then Pilate went outside to the people and said to them, I cannot find any reason to condemn him, but then, of course, he had him whipped. Okay, and we'll skip over all of that and pick up the conversation here in a little bit. So he went back into the palace and asked Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus did not answer. I think um, God does not coerce. Jesus has revealed things to Pilate, but it seems like now, Pilate is kind of um, shut off, and so Jesus does not respond. He's not sincere or genuine at this point. And Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Remember, I have the authority to set you free and also to have you crucified, because I, am a, I represent a kingdom of the world, and that's what kingdoms of the world do. I have power over you. I can kill you. And Jesus answered, you have authority over me only because it was given to you by God. So the man who handed me over to you is guilty of a worse sin. When Pilate heard this, he tried to find a way to set Jesus free. But the crowd shouted back, If you set him free, that means that you are not the emperor's friend. Anyone who claims to be a king is a rebel against the emperor. And again, Pilate, kingdom of the world mindset, we're always trying to climb and to get more power. So this would be very threatening here for him to give in at this point. Okay, because this this threatens his status along the, the kingdom of the world axis. And so when Pilate heard these words, he took Jesus outside and sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the stone pavement. And it was then almost noon, of the day before the Passover, and Pilate said to your people, here is your king. So what we see here is Jesus... Uh, Really, we highlight Pilate, his kingdom, kingdom of the world, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. I don't use power. I don't coerce. So it's Jesus' really indictment of power over politics, kingdoms of the world. Pilate's truth, or his way of running the world, again, was power, coercion, force, and violence. And he could just say, I mean, look around at you, Jesus. Look at the Roman Empire. That is truth. Okay, that is power, and we see that in every empire um, in all ages. And Pilate could point to the cross and say, that is truth. The cross at that time was the symbol of Rome's power and authority to kill anyone who was in opposition. This is truth, the power that I have over you. Okay, I think what we see in Jesus' truth, Jesus' way of running the world, exactly the opposite, of course. Love, forgiveness, forgiveness. Nonviolence. Okay, how he throughout his entire ministry refused to use violence. And I think it's just really fascinating as we go through all of these different things that Jesus exposed um, coming up to the crucifixion that I think we see this is exposed and defeated. And it is interesting that Jesus died on the cross. And of course the symbol of what really an ultimate symbol in that time for power over was transformed, and now when we think about the cross, it is a symbol of self-sacrificial love. Okay, So Jesus, if, if we allow that to penetrate our minds, completely transforms, I think, our way of looking at the world around us, defeats and destroys those false symbols and ways of looking at things. Okay, and just as an example of this, remember the disciples all the way through, kingdom of the world mentality, power over, when are you going to rule? Can I sit at your right side? And they wanted to use violence also. So when they were initially, uh, when they came out to meet them in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the disciples were with Jesus, saw what was going on, they asked, shall we use our swords? And one of them, Peter, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, enough of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And isn't it remarkable here that wouldn't that have an impact? You know, you, you're the people out to capture Jesus and you watch him do a miracle to heal the person who was, was coming out to, uh, to drag him off. But Jesus, again, this is a revelation that my kingdom does not look like that. We don't use power and force, coercion in this kingdom. Okay, I would say another trial or indictment is Jesus' indictment of religion, now a religion that is just like a kingdom of the world, because the religion in that time was just like the kingdom of the world. It was power over. okay, A top-down, coercive power structure, just another version of the kingdom of the world. And we see that in the life of Jesus. I mean, what are the religious leaders always trying to do? They're always trying to kill him. Okay, They're, they're just using the same methods. They don't have as much power during that time as the Romans, but it's the same structure. Okay, and coming back to the, the scapegoat, Caiaphas, really he needed a scapegoat. Things are about to explode in Jerusalem at this time, and so a scapegoat is very handy for Caiaphas because now we can unite. What a scapegoat is, is everyone can funnel all of their anger on one person and it brings the group together. Okay, so for both Jews and Romans, Jesus is a good outlet for all of that to perhaps calm the situation in that time. And just to, uh, as a point on that, remember, uh, they're always trying to kill Jesus and after he resurrects Lazarus, three days in the tomb, the Pharisees were there and met in the council. What shall we do? Look at the miracles this man is performing. If we let him go on this way, everyone will believe in him and the Roman authorities will take action and destroy our temple and our nation. And then Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, what fools you are. Don't you realize that it's better for you to have one man die for the people instead of having the whole nation destroyed. And from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus, even though he'd just done this incredible miracle. Okay, this is just its like Pilate, just in a religious form. But it's the same, it's really a kingdom of the world. Okay, and how far they were willing to go, I, I just find this very shocking when we consider these very religious people that they actually were driven to such a point that they could say this. When Pilate said, do you want me to crucify your king? And they answered, the chief priests answered, the only king we have is the emperor. I mean, they hated the Romans. They were looking for a Messiah. And the fact that they could actually say this, I find quite shocking. The only king we have is the emperor. Okay? They, were, they were desperate and, and really united in their hatred for Jesus at that time. Okay, So we have kingdoms of the world, false religions, all of that is exposed and defeated. And I think just in general, Jesus' indictment or the trial of violence and scapegoating all the way through human history. Okay, And and I should have uh, put up this verse from Luke 11 where Jesus basically says from Cain all the way through, and he lists all the people that have been killed, let's tie all that together with the cross, all of that violence. Okay? And that the people, this, this angry mob, mobs are very dangerous because um, they, they do things that an individual wouldn't do. They, they really are united when, when they're brought together in hatred over a person or a group. Um, it, it's an out-of-control situation. It's, it's satanic, really. And what we see in this mob here, again, is Pilate's wanting to set them free and they say, no, not him, we want a Barabbas, that, that Jesus did all these miracles. Nothing that really you could say bad against Jesus, but united in this mob-like mentality hatred, and they were willing to say, let's let a known criminal go, crucify Jesus. And um, I, I wish, I would love to really experience what it was like there, that it seems like there was just a, a hatred, I think really fueled on by, um, by satanic um, forces, and that the people were just out of control, screaming. Kill him, kill him, crucify him. A few days earlier, they're welcoming him. You know, Hosanna, he's on a donkey and welcome the new king. Think about all the people that Jesus healed. What were those people? How, How can you have this mob here that wants to lynch Jesus despite the life that he lived? It's really unthinkable. Okay, so I want to just say a little bit about. Uh, scapegoating and, uh, and I think some practical applications. Jesus, again, the trial is all of these things. We want to have this fully exposed in our own lives and so that we use what Jesus did at the cross and realize we don't want to do that at all. We don't want to be involved in scapegoating. Here's an excellent book by uh, Brian Zond. Um, and uh, here's a little quote where he talks about this. It's called Farewell to Mars. A crowd under the influence of an angry, vengeful spirit is the most dangerous thing in the world. It is closely associated with the essence of what is satanic. The inclination to blame, accuse, and recriminate. The words, Satan and devil, both mean to accuse and blame. When the satanic spirit of angry blame and accusation infects a crowd, a perilous phenomenon is born. The crowd abandons truth as it searches for a target upon which it can express the pent-up rage it feels. The group think phenomenon of mob mentality quickly overtakes rational thought and individual responsibility. The mob becomes capable of evil that would be unthinkable for most people as an individual. The scapegoat is usually a marginalized person or a minority group that is easy to victimize. But the crowd does not admit that it has selected a weak victim as a scapegoat. The crowd must continue to practice the the self-deception that the scapegoat is a real threat to freedom or righteousness or whatever the crowd is using to justify its fear-based insecurity and anger. Sacrificing a scapegoat is highly effective in producing a sense of well-being and belonging within the crowd. It's the blood-drenched altar of civilization. It's the Cain model for preserving the polis. It's collective murder as the alchemy for peace and unity. The crowd vents its violence and vengeance upon a scapegoat to protect itself from itself. If you follow an angry crowd, even if it calls itself Christian, you are likely to be wrong. Massacres, slaughters, crusades, pogroms, genocides, and the Holocaust are what can happen when people follow an angry crowd in search of a scapegoat. So we see this in dramatic cases. Certainly the Holocaust would be a great example of scapegoating, okay, where when the whole nation can be united against a certain group of people, and we can see how far um, that can actually go. Um, I think, in, unless we're all uh, saints here, we, we all, to some extent, are involved in this. And uh, what, what I find really uh, shocking here is that Jesus was made to be a scapegoat, which I think should be a lesson that for Christians, we do not scapegoat. But yet, what happened? The Jews not just uh, the Holocaust, but all the way through, and there's so much, it's a really horrible reading, honestly, but all the way after the time of Christ through Luther, uh, the Jews were scapegoated frequently by Christians as Christ killers and were persecuted. And so we just, now Christians frequently, uh, just moved on to another scapegoat. And this is rather painful uh, to read. I have admiration for Martin Luther in uh, many things that he wrote, but he wrote horrible things. This is actually pretty mild about uh, the, the Jewish people that I think it reflects this, this human desire, inclination to scapegoat. <clears throat> Christian antipathy against the Jews had been unrelenting across the centuries. Martin Luther did not sow the seed of anti-Semitism, but watered it to a devastating effect, hoping, in his own words, to furnish the Christian quotes, with enough material not only to defend himself against the blind, venomous Jews, but also to become the foe of the Jews' malice, lying, and cursing, and to understand not only that their beliefs belief is false, but that they are surely possessed by all devils. And he has a whole book, okay, this is a painful chapter, I think, in, in Christianity. But we want to be aware of this. Do we scapegoat at all? And just to see... Uh, how destructive that is. So the Holocaust was really a a fruit that came out of centuries of scapegoating against a certain group of individuals. Now, um, scapegoating is, I think, almost the basest, about as far away from what God is like and what his kingdom is like as we can possibly be. And um, we should have a whole lecture on this but the subject of god's wrath is i think when we are fully and separately uh, separated from god's spirit it's when the winds are let loose okay and we are kind of on our own acting independent of god and i'll just bring up a couple of verses in the old testament because i think what we see in the mob at that time is a group that has really cut themselves off entirely from god's spirit which is God's wrath. It's not imposed by God. It is a result of when we are disconnected from God. There are dozens of verses in the Old Testament. It's one of the most redundant subjects in the Bible. And I will only bring up some verses here in Deuteronomy. But the theme carries all the way through the Old Testament. First we start out like this. My anger will flame up like fire. This is God talking. And burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below, consume the roots of the mountain. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Whenever you read something like this, uh, don't stop. Keep reading. Okay? What is God's anger, God's wrath? Keep reading. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were 1,000 defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Here's why. The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And you will find in literally dozens of examples, whenever the subject of God's anger or wrath comes up, it is always in the context of God abandoning, handing over, forsaking, giving up. Okay? What were Jesus' dying words on the cross? Why have you handed me over? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? So God's wrath here, not, uh, not imposed, but the consequence of being completely apart from God. And the other one in Deuteronomy here. They will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they're about to enter. And when that happens, I will become angry with them and I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and when they, and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because my, I, them, their God, are, am no longer with them." And there are, his, there are so many historical examples throughout the Old Testament where we see what God's wrath is in action and it, it's a, a chaotic situation that is associated with violence, murder, scapegoating, and I think that is what we see in the mob. They are really completely under a satanic influence. We can see this as a manifestation of God's wrath. So um, let's just see, can we make this at all in a... I've had this experience, so I'll just be open about this, that have you ever been in a group where uh, some individual or some group or a political figure came up for discussion and everyone really dislikes that individual and there's more discussion and you notice uh, there's more warmth and more enjoyment and there's really a good, rich feeling in that moment when you uh, just enjoy really piling on and more anecdotes and it gets you know, built up. Well, that is really, that's, a, that's scapegoating. Um, I go with my sons to Panera uh, frequently. They like to eat bagels there and we'll sit and do homework. And there's a group of men that meets at a certain time. It just happens to be the time we usually go there. And they always sit together and talk about politics. And I won't tell you whether they're Republicans or Democrat, but they, they will always pile on one individual. And so I can't help but, but listen. But, and it's, uh, they have a great time. But there's nothing that unites a group better than to have a common enemy like that. But we want to be aware of that, that it is very, very dangerous to scapegoat. Um, these words from C.S. Lewis. Now, I want you, before you read this, imagine someone that you dislike, maybe it a political figure or someone else. Just have that person in your mind. So just imagine that person, and now let's, let's read the words of C.S. Lewis here in Mere Christianity. The real test is this. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper, and he's talking about enemies. Okay? You read it online, let's say. And then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not quite be true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Okay, first you thought, boy, this person did something, you see. Well, now you find out, well, actually it may not be quite that bad. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that, or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies as bad as possible? If it is the second, then it is, I am afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, later on we shall wish to see gray as black, and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad, and not be able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. And if we want an example, again, just look at what happened at the, uh, at the Holocaust. And, of course, we see it at the cross also. Now, what I find, um, and again, I have experienced this personally, that religion often tends to scapegoat. And there are some, some groups that, that seem to unite primarily on what is bad about other religious groups and that there can be, uh, again, even it feels spiritual, it feels religious to talk about heresy and so on. And not to say that we should be blind and not uh, be aware of things like that, but uh, probably the, the Westboro Baptist Church would be the, the best example that uh, really united against homosexuality. And all of the anger was just put into that one issue, and that blossomed and then extended to to other things. And just on that issue, I think, you know, there are maybe five or six verses in the Bible that have anything to do with homosexuality. There are thousands that have to do with greed, selfishness, idolatry. We don't scapegoat against these things very often, though, because we're all involved in that. Okay, it is feels much better to scapegoat against something that, well, at least I'm not like that. There's a pleasure that can be involved in that. Okay, So we tend to scapegoat against things that are clearly not at all a sin that we see in ourselves. And so I would just say, be wary of religious gatherings that spend too much time on the the heresy of others. Okay, That can easily turn to scapegoating. Finally, an interesting, uh, another thing on trial that we can see in Jesus is really an indictment of legalism, rule keeping as a means to God. I believe I've talked about this before, that when we consider the people that crucified Jesus probably the most devout religious rule-keeping group in the history of humankind, how careful they were to keep the rules. Jesus commented, remember, you search the scriptures. they memorized the Old Testament. They would, of course, never miss church. Jesus commented on their careful tithing. Jesus also commented on their mission and outreach projects. You search the whole world for one convert. And, of course, they were Adventists, in the sense that they were eagerly awaiting the first coming, as some of us are waiting the second coming. So they, they were doing all of these things. And of course, it was uh, Sabbath keepers that crucified Jesus. And I believe we talked before that they wanted to break his leg so that he would die faster, so that they could make it home to keep the Sabbath. All right. So if, um, if there ever is a case against rule keeping as a means of getting right with God, the, the cross is hit. It's not that... Not that this is a bad list. I'm not putting down the list. I'm just saying that this is ultimately not what is important. It depends why we do what we do. They didn't know what God was like, and they they hated Jesus. And so you can can have a good list. That is not ultimately what is important. So again, Jesus exposes that whole false system of rule-keeping, having the right list as a means to God. So I would say that in the face of power over political and religious kingdoms, just look at what Jesus did at the cross, in the face of that. He was not power over, he was power under. In the face of violence, Jesus healed the man's ear. He was nonviolent all the way through. Did not call legions of angels. In the face of mob mentality and scapegoating, Jesus just forgave. So how do we run the world? And uh, again, it's all we know, really. It's force, and we we try to rule the world through nationalism and influence of political powers, coercion, and frequently that, that goes along with blame and scapegoating of other groups. And I think the importance here of what we see in Jesus is we just want to reject that entirely. Now, whatever we call Christian, let's make it look like Jesus. Whatever we call a Christian endeavor, it should look like the cross. It should look like Jesus. So kingdoms of the world will always fight. Okay, let's let kingdoms of the world do that. But when we unite as Christians, we don't unite and use these methods. Okay, we use Christ-like methods. That's how we run the world, by coming under people, by serving, suffering, sacrificing, if necessary. The history of the church, and I'll just uh, finish with this in in a little story here, but Uh, The first few hundred years after the crucifixion, the church was spread by the blood of the martyrs. It was a a minority. um, But what happened here with Constantine really was devastating for the church, because now the church was in power and began to use Kingdom of the World's methods, force and coercion, all the way through the Dark Ages. So I won't go through the whole story here with Constantine, but this was really, I think, a, a dark, terrible shift in things, where the church came into power. By 380 AD, the official religion of the Roman Empire um, was Christianity. It was a crime not to be a Christian. And now we have the militant church instead of the suffering, serving church. And that has just continued all the way through. And here around the time of Charlemagne, if there is any one of the Saxon people lurking among them, unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, let him die. And so you spread by... Persecution, and we have the doctrine that it's okay to inflict temporal pain to help someone avoid eternal pain. Uh, these are just clearly not Christ-like methods, and uh, the the Crusades, using force and violence. This this is what the kingdom of the world does, and that we put a Christian label on that, is uh, very very destructive. Now, what one thing that has changed, I would say quite a bit in the way that I view things. I was a medical student when uh, the whole uh, Kuwait invasion occurred. And then I have a d- very distinct impression of 9-11 and my feelings at that time. And I can realize, looking back, that for me, the America and Christianity were very much fused. I didn't realize at the time, I wouldn't have said that. But I pretty much equated what America did with uh, Christianity. And uh, I, again, they're talking about scapegoating. But I remember eagerly coming home from medical school, the Kuwait invasion, watching it on TV, CNN. It was, it was kind of like watching uh, your favorite sports team. Okay? And there was just a lustful, I have to say, enjoyment to see how we're going to go in there and just crush those people. And I had the same feeling also uh, after 9-11 and the whole Iraq invasion. And uh, things have changed a lot for me, and I think it's mainly just doing this Bible study and focusing in on some of these things, that now in my mindset, I want to separate as far as possible anything that is of a kingdom of the world with the kingdom of Christ. I think they should look so different. And we don't want to at all fuse what we do as a Christian with what our country does. I think we want to have them very much separate and distinct. And if you want to read a book, one of them that was very eye-opening for me, probably One of the first that made a big impact is uh, Greg Boyd's book, The Myth of a Christian Nation. And he describes his experience um, in a Christian church. And this was very much uh, my experience as well, but he just expresses it much better. So I happened to visit a July 4th worship service at a certain megachurch. At center stage in this auditorium stood a large cross next to an equally large American flag. The congregation sang some praise choruses, mixed with such patriotic hymns as God Bless America. The climax of the service centered on a video of a well-known Christian military general giving a patriotic speech about how God had blessed America and blessed its military troops. Triumphant military music played in the background as he spoke. The video closed with a scene of a silhouette of three crosses on a hill with an American flag waving in the background. Majestic, patriotic music now thundered, Suddenly, four fighter jets appeared on the horizon, flew over the crosses, and then split apart. As they roared over the camera, the words, God bless America, appeared on the screen in front of the crosses. The congregation responded with roaring applause, catcalls, and a standing ovation. I saw several people wiping tears from their eyes. And indeed, as I remained frozen in my seat, I grew teary-eyed as well, but for entirely different reasons. I was struck with horrified grief. Thoughts raced through my mind. How could the cross and the sword have been so thoroughly fused without anyone seeming to notice? How could Calvary be associated with bombs and missiles? How could the kingdom of God be reduced to this sort of violent nationalistic tribalism? Has the church progressed at all since the Crusades? Now, this would have offended me as a medical student years ago, and so uh, I don't know how all of you feel about this, but this has been my, my experience that nationalistic idolatry is a very real uh, danger. And so the more that we can see how Jesus is different than kingdoms of the world, I think the more we'll move away from that. Now, I appreciate many things about America. You know, Thomas Jefferson and the Constitution and separation of church and state. There are a lot of things that are incredibly positive. But nationalistic idolatry is extremely dangerous. So in in summary, the crucifixion, who is on trial? All of these bad things about our world, kingdoms of the world, are on trial. And remember, this is, I said, the key verse in John, that now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world and everything about the ruler of this world will be exposed. And the more is exposed in our minds, the more we can choose um, to live and do things in a different way. Dear Father, thank you so much for going to such great lengths to reveal these things to us. Uh, Certainly, there is just so much here that uh, uh, is so much uh, on a deeper level, but for each person here, I would just pray that you would um, be actively engaged with each person, that we can see these things with a greater clarity, reality, and that we begin to reflect what your real kingdom looks like, and that we can live out... uh, perhaps just in small ways, uh, Christ-like life, by the way we treat people, uh, that we can begin to establish uh, a new kingdom on this earth. Amen.